Well, all means all. Trade is meant to be good for a country, for an economy participating in trade. And therefore, it is possible to make everybody, every single individual in a country better off by trade. What impact does the pandemic have on the global trading system? What role will trade play in the global recovery and global economy of the future? After COVID-19, what steps are needed to make the trading system more sustainable and more inclusive? These are some of the questions tackled by the AIG Global Trade Series 2021, a series of podcasts brought to you by AIG in partnership with some of the world's leading centers of expertise on global trade. Hello and welcome to the AIG Global Trade Series 2021, a series of podcast conversations with leading thinkers on the future of international trade. My name is Marie Kasperik, and I'm the Executive Director of Georgetown Law's Institute of International Economic Law and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, a think tank in Washington, D.C. I have the honor to fill in for the regular host of this podcast series, Rem Kortebeck, from the Klingendal Institute for today's special All Women Experts episode on inclusive trade. Today, we're going to ask the question, is trade working for all? And have a conversation on how we make trade more inclusive at a time where protectionist policies increasingly dominate the trade landscape. To make sense of it all and hopefully find some answers, I'm joined here today by two Olympians of international trade. From Sweden, I'm joined by Cecilia Malmström. Cecilia is a non-resident senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics and a host of the bi-weekly virtual discussion series called Trade Wins. She's also a visiting professor at the School of Business, Economics and Law at the University of Gothenburg. Cecilia is the former European Commissioner for Trade, leading the trade policy of the then 27-year EU member states. As their trade chief, she represented them in the World Trade Organization and other international trade bodies. She negotiated a record number of bilateral trade agreements with key countries, including agreements with Canada, Japan, Mexico, Singapore, Vietnam, and the four founding Mercosur countries. She previously was European Commissioner for Home Affairs and Minister for EU Affairs in the Swedish government. From Paris, I'm joined by Marion Janssen, an expert with deep expertise in international trade and international institutions. Marion is Director of the Trade and Agriculture Directorate at the OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. Her directorate provides policy analysis and evidence-based advice to help governments develop trade, agriculture, and fisheries policies that contribute to more inclusive and sustainable growth. Before joining the OECD, Marianne had senior positions at the International Trade Center, the World Trade Organization, and the International Labor Organization. There is one affiliation that all three of us have in common that I have not yet mentioned, but that is actually very relevant to today's discussion on inclusive trade. We all proudly belong to the Trade Experts, a global network dedicated to shining a light on empowering women trade experts from all over the world. With that, welcome Marianne and Cecilia. It is fantastic to have you join today. We're short on time and long on content, so let's dive right in. Marianne, let's start with you. Trade for all. Sounds great, but who is all and who are the ones that are currently left behind? 
Thanks, Marie, and thanks for having me with you today. Well, all means all. Um, those of us who studied, like myself, trade economics, international economics, we learned that trade is meant um, to be good for a country, for an economy participating in trade, and therefore it is possible to make everybody, every single individual in a country better off by trade. Now, that does not necessarily happen automatically. We do know that if you just open up borders, there will be initially winners and losers of trade. We have maybe in the past a bit underestimated both the number of potential losers and the, the, the level of losses that could occur as, as a result of opening up. But what is the case, and we're finding this from the statistics, and people believe this when you do surveys, trade openness, globalization is good for the economy, it's good for the country. And what we have to make sure, what we have to ensure is that those gains for the economy are distributed across the economy so that every single individual and every single business owner, small businesses, large businesses, individual men, women, well-educated, low-educated, that all of them get benefits and gain from trade. So all means all. Thank you. The European Union also has a trade for all strategy that was launched in 2015 when you were trade commissioner, Cecilia. The aim of the strategy was, and I quote, a balanced and progressive trade policy that works for all to harness globalization. What I would love to hear from you is, what has implementation looked like so far? And maybe more broadly, how do we develop value-based trade policies that are inclusive of women, SMEs, and developing countries, as Maria mentioned? Thank you very much. It's an honor to be with you and, uh, of course, with Marion as well. Well, you're absolutely right. We adopted a strategy called Trade for All because we do realize, as Marion said, that, that trade is generally good for countries. It brings jobs, investment, growth, and it also leads to meetings between people because countries do not trade with each other, but people do in companies and so on. So it leads to extra cooperation and new ideas and, and so on. But you need to give specific attention to groups who maybe not naturally are the winners of, of trade immediately. So that's why we, for instance, in, in our trade agreements, our, our bilateral trade agreements, we have specific chapters dedicated to SMEs in order to facilitate for SMEs to have access to the information that you need if you want to export to a country so that you can have specific websites, specific contact points for easy access to the new rules and the new possibilities. We also saw that women do not have access to trade in the same way as men. But when women trade globally, they use that the money that they gain to invest in their, their family, in education, in health. So it's a very concrete way of addressing poverty. But you need to make sure that women are, are included in trade. That's not very easy because it's their discriminating laws, their attitudes, there's a lack of finance, there's a lot of contacts, but you need to be aware of this so that you can work concretely to make sure that women are also included uh, in this. And finally, there are certain values that the European Union are proud to, to promote internally and externally, and they are also mirrored in our, our trade agreements. We have specific chapters on trade and sustainable development, referring to international conventions of uh, environment, of ILO, the International Labour Organization, and of human rights related to, to trade. So those are sort of an obligatory part of the trade agreement. Sometimes you can go further with more like-minded partners, but at least these are a sort of a, a level that, that needs to be there and that you can promote through trade. It's, of course, hard to measure 
the success of this implementation because there's so much else in foreign policy and development policies and, and contacts. But I think it's, it's a good thing. And we've seen that also other trade agreements outside the European bilateral trade agreements also include these values more and more. So I think it is there to come and we'll just see how, how much we can push it because citizens, consumers expect from us that trade is responsible. You, you mentioned obviously specific groups that need specific attention. What also needs specific attention is making trade work for all also means creating trade that doesn't need to negative externalities, be it for labor, climate, pollution, human rights. There's a lot to unpack here. So maybe, Marianne, we, we start with you. The OECD, who actually just celebrated its 60th birthday, has a long tradition of working on interlinkages between trade and environment and making that work. My question to you would be, how can we make trade and environmental sustainability compatible? How does the OECD support this? Marie, we, we support this in multiple uh, ways, but uh, maybe let me start by emphasizing that one of the, the biggest areas of attention in the environmental field right now is the one of carbon emissions. And uh, those carbon emissions, they create externalities without trade. See, if you produce uh, with a lot of carbon emissions in one country, the neighboring country and many countries around receive externalities, they receive the effect of it. Now, trade is therefore not the, the, the source of the issue. What, where trade comes in and more broadly open, both open policies for trade and capital is that maybe countries feel that they are a bit more restricted in how they can manage in their country the environment. If, for instance, a country says, I would like to have strict environmental policies in order to reduce carbon emissions, if the country implements this, the neighboring country benefits in terms of externalities, less carbon emissions in the neighboring country. But the neighboring country may benefit in another way. Its companies suddenly may become a bit more competitive because they don't bear the costs of these uh, environmentally friendly policies. So this is where trade comes into the game that countries feel, oh, if we are open, we need even more than before to collaborate with each other on our environmental policies. What are we doing in this regard? Well, we are taking the position that indeed the openness is not the origin of the issue. The origin of the issue is that there are externalities from economic activities. We encourage environmental ministries and when necessary finance ministries to agree with each other across countries on climate packages or on environmental packages, strong environmental solutions that can be monitored and enforced. And we have notably recently called for a strong collaboration on explicit and implicit carbon prices. In the trade and agriculture directed, we fully support this initiative. We help with the analytical work as necessary, but trade is not the origin of the problem. The origin of the problem lies somewhere else, and we encourage and we collaborate with all relevant policymakers and experts to find solutions. My follow-up question before I turn to Celia on, on the same question is, I, I guess this begs the overarching questions, how do we avoid negative externalities without resorting to protectionist measures, cooperation instead of confrontation? And, you know, Marion, you can take this, Cecilia, you can take this, both of you can chime in. Well, maybe I, I kick off. I think you're... Trade is potentially a victim of its success. We have currently open borders. Countries, companies, and individuals benefit from openness. We are maybe a bit used to having this. 
And we cannot hardly imagine anymore what happens if we cannot trade. Even so, this crisis, the COVID-19 pandemic, has given us a sense of what happens when certain supply chains break down. Now, because trade is open, borders open for trade, this can be used as a weapon. If you do not want to talk to me, Marie, about joint environmental policies, then I'm going to say, I hurt you by closing something at my border. That's, of course, not ideal. I would rather, Marie, continue to talk with you about joint environmental policies and making them measurable, monitorable, and enforceable. Well, I would also like to continue um, talking about joint environmental policies with you, Marianne. <laughs> Actually, Cecilia, the, the EU has done some fascinating groundwork there recently. I'm talking here about their conditionality program that they introduced in their trade strategy. Could you talk a little bit more about what that means, integrating conditionality in European trade deals? Well, yes, ideally we need strong multilateral rules. And that's why it's such a pity that WTO is not functioning as it should. Because, of course, if we have global rules that regulate all these things, it would be much fairer, much more predictable. And we should never stop working for that to, to, to continue. The EU has, as I said before, trade and sustainability chapters in its uh, trade agreements. Uh, and they are negotiated. So they are part of a trade agreement. And this is what we expect countries to do. This is in some parts difficult, but we refer to international conventions. So it's not like the EU invented their own standards. It's international agreed conventions on environment, on labor law, um, on human rights. And sometimes when we refer to standards, we use very helpfully the OECD standards as well that most countries have, have signed up to. With the least developed countries, there is a sort of asymmetrical trade agreement called JSP+, and JSP stands for General System of Preferences, where the EU opens up its market in a much more generous way than we ask from these countries, obviously. And if the, the, the access to the market is partially linked to the signature and the acceptance and the application, the implementation in real life of 27 international conventions in these areas. And recently, Mr. Dobrovskis, the, the current trade commissioner, proposed to increase those to 34, I think, conventions. And there is a way that you, you help countries to, to sort of be able to implement them via development aid, via trade policy, via political cooperation, and so on. It has to do with good governance as well, and with, with transparency. And that is a way to try to support and conditionality if you want. But it's tricky, of course, because you can't change the whole world just through a trade agreement. So it has to be embedded in a wider strategy uh, as well. And sometimes that is difficult because many countries do have problems in, in, in this regard. So you need to find uh, a balance where, where you could, you know, can be helped, but, but not being seen as too patronizing and, and too dominant because, of course, that would have a backlash as well. So ideally, it has to be in a partnership. We are going to take a quick break. And when we return, we're going to continue our conversation on Is trade working for all? At a time of sluggish and uneven global growth, when geopolitics and the pandemic are stressing the rules-based global system, conversations about international trade and its contribution to global prosperity have never been more important. If you would like to listen to more podcasts on global trade, search AIG Global Trade Series 2021. This series is brought to you by AIG and its partners, 
the Institute of International Economic Law at Georgetown Law School, Chatham House, the Klingendal Institute, the Research Institute of Economy, Trade and Industry, the Jack Delors Institute, and the International Chamber of Commerce, UK and France. The Brittlesman Stiftung is a knowledge partner of the series. We are back from our break. We're going to continue our conversation with Cecilia Malmström and Marianne Janssen on Is Trade Working for All? So Marianne mentioned climate obviously being as a big focus also at the OECD. I have read a lot about the EU trying to green trade deals. What, what does that mean when they are talking about greening trade deals? Well, well it means, uh, and I think th this is something that, that has come to stay. This is the trend in, in trade policy, that, that trade also has to be more responsible in order to assist in complying with the Paris agreements and working together with countries towards a, a climate neutral policy. We always have a, a reference to the Paris Agreement, a binding clause that the country has to obey. By that, we also have references to certain other international conventions on illegal logging, on the protection of, of the endangered species, for instance, species and other related uh, areas. We also write into the agreement that, that we should not do harm to the environment by, by trade. And we should always seek environmental friendly solutions. And there's cooperation to promote green trade and green technology uh, as well. So it is a, a way to, to write it into the trade agreement. But as I said, these are often embedded in a bigger partnership agreement or association agreement where you can cooperate in a wild area of fields to promote green technology, green trade and green transition. So, so I think that that is a, a good way as a complement to all other kind of international cooperation, of course. But you also need to assist kind of poorer countries so that they can actually uh, do this. And that's why I ho hope that there will be new commitments in Glasgow uh, in, in a few weeks and that we will continue to, to work in international forums, OECD obviously, but also WTO to see how we can sort of get rules on, on greening of trade on a more global level as well. Yeah, that, that would be really, really important. In our opening, we, we talked a little bit about already about the groups that are currently not necessarily reaping the benefits of globalization and trade and that need further attention. One important group that comparatively gets neglected in the international debate, but is currently very much at the forefront of the national and European debate is the lower middle class of developed countries. The current U.S. strategy of building back better is putting workers at the center of U.S. trade policy to ensure that they share the benefits of trade. Yes, the strategy is met with some criticism and questions internationally, but the U.S. really is just one example of where workers feel that past promises were not met. So let's focus a little bit on workers in labor. Marion. Let me turn to you first as the former head of the International Labor Organization and ask you to wear that hat once more. How can the benefits of trade be distributed more evenly, especially in the area of labor? Thanks, Marie. And maybe to clarify, at the International Labor Office, I led a program on trade and employment. So really a focus on that relationship between trade and labor, both at the research level, policy level and technical assistance level. But after this introduction, let me come back to what we are currently doing at the OECD, which would, I think, not be very, very disaligned from what how the ILO would think about this. We look at what is necessary in order to 
ensure a level playing field, a good distribution of gains across countries. And there is a level playing field question between countries among countries that comes into the question there. We look at how are the benefits of trade distributed within countries, what do notably national domestic policies like social safety nets or distributional policies, what role do they play? And then how are the gains being distributed within a value chain, along that chain? And there's a lot of new items have come up in this regard during the COVID-19 crisis. Now, let me maybe say something more on each of these three items. When it comes to the distribution of gains across countries, there is a sense that maybe some countries are using interventions, government support in a way that distorts competition. And there are different types of concerns. Now, let me mention one that is maybe not playing into the big geopolitical discussions. And I worked in the International Trade Center last year. We advised governments to support the small and medium-sized enterprises, including with loans or even grants. Now, we thought that was a great policy for SMEs, but I very rapidly got calls from representatives from developing countries who said, well, Marion, the rich countries can do this. Poor countries can't provide financial support to SMEs. So you are distorting competition. So with policy advice that we really considered good for SMEs in general, it was an advice that had this potential to distort. So distortions between countries can happen quite easily, and it's rather difficult to disentangle what is good, what is bad, what is very ugly, just to use the title of a recent panel we organized at the WTO Public Forum. That's between countries. When it comes to within countries, there are there's been a long tradition of researching what countries can do to help distribution of gains within the countries. Skills policies matter a lot, but also, of course, social safety net and redistributive policies. Now, you will sense that here we are very much in the space of domestic policies. But I think that here, an international agreement that we are currently negotiating at the OECD, the, the global tax deal, can play a major role because that deal that allows countries to reduce the race to the bottom in taxation gives back a lot of redistributive power to governments and can therefore have a very explicit and strong role for making trade to trade work, make trade work for all. So that agreement that where we are coming close, we're very close to a big deal is key for the discussion we are having today. Last but not least, so between countries, within countries, along the value chain, uh, there we are feeling increased tensions regarding the behavior of large players that are often in rich countries within the value chain, that they put suppliers, smaller suppliers in developing countries under pressure, and those suppliers then cannot produce in an, an labor-friendly or an environmentally friendly way. So there are a lot of discussions going on, including in Europe and the United States, on how to ensure that everybody along the value chain uses correct approaches, applies a responsible business conduct, and I expect more and more work uh, to happen in that field. So three approaches and the combination of them will matter for workers everywhere. You mentioned the lack of an international level playing field. Let's let's stay briefly on that topic. The, the level playing field is among the factors that affect the allocation of trade benefits, like you said, within among countries, sectors, workers, and regions. So free and inclusive trade can obviously never mean a free-for-all. Cecilia, in a world where the level playing field is so deeply unleveled, 
how do we make sure that players like China or others play fair? You're absolutely right. And I also want to start by congratulating Marion and her team and, and everybody in OECD for, for the, the big successes with it almost done tax deal. It would really be historical if we managed to achieve something. And it would restore a little bit the trust in the powers of multilateral agreements. We've been lacking that for the last years. And, and this is really a true milestone in that, that work. Free trade is never free, totally. A trade agreement between, say, the EU and Canada, that's 1,600 pages of rules. So, so of course, you, you regulate uh, the free trade. And that's how it should be, because, of course, it has to be you know, it has to be rule-based. It has to be transparent and predictable. You need to be very clear towards your constituency, what you're doing so that people can follow. And that's also one part of, of trade for law, that it's transparent and inclusive, that people can have a say and come with their ideas during a, uh, the negotiation of a trade agreement. Then there are countries who do not follow rules. And that causes uh, distortion on the global markets. And it also has effects on this unfairness which hits workers the most, of course. And there you mentioned China. China is not really following WTO rules there or, or distorting global markets with having massive amount of, of state-owned companies who are sponsored by the state. There's also lack of the transparency and, and non-discrimination. There's a forced uh, transfer of, of technology and they have different rules when it comes to environment and, and labor laws. So this is, of course, a problem. What you can do is to engage with these countries. We try to do that from the European Union in the uh, investment agreement that was concluded, but is now in the freezer because of the sanctions and the human rights uh, and so on. But in that agreement, actually, I don't know what will happen to it, but there are quite some, some important successes there where China actually agrees to discipline themselves much more when it comes to state-owned companies, when it comes to, to lack of equal treatment from, for EU companies and, and Chinese uh, and so on. So you can achieve a little bit in bilateral agreement, but you need international rules, if possible. We need to update the WTO rulebook, working with China and others as well. This is ongoing work, but it's slow and, and difficult. And if a country still continues to violate, you need to have tools in your toolbox. You need to be able to have trade defense mechanisms in order to, to sort of compensate for those. And I know that the European Union have just updated that toolbox with different anti-coercion elements and, and tools that they can use. That is not ideal, of course, but at a certain point, you have to, to do that in order to make sure that competition is not totally distorted. Yeah, I, I've read to your recent, peers and, uh, recent piece in the Foreign Affairs magazine, where you also stressed really the importance of cooperation, specifically between transatlantic cooperation between the US and the EU in maybe urging China together to, to play more fair. So I, I recommend that to the listeners as well, if they want to take a deeper dive on the level playing field. We mentioned at the beginning of this episode, the importance of trade and gender. Let's dive into that topic a little bit more. Women obviously play an important role in the economy and in international trade. The OECD has been at the forefront of women's economic empowerment and the question how trade can empower women and reduce gender inequalities. A case in point might be the recent global trade and gender arrangement. Marion, can you tell us a little bit about that new acronym that is in town? Yes, so I will do that with pleasure, Marie. The acronym is GTAGA. And I think it's a great acronym because it's so easy to remember. <laughs> Easier, as one of the ministers uh, who recently was here said, than a global trade and gender <laughs> arrangement. 
Gitaga makes me sing of songs. So I can remember, I can even listen to the music about it. Now, Gitaga is, I find, a very cool thing. It's an arrangement uh, of between initially three countries, Canada, Chile, and New Zealand. And it was last week joined by a fourth country, Mexico. And we were very proud to host the celebration for this new member joining at OECD. Gitaga, I think, is an interesting arrangement that is uh, not an agreement, not uh, with, uh, doesn't have a strong enforcement mechanism, but I find it from a legal aspect very interesting because it, it, it brings together all these different mechanisms that are important when you want to link a domestic policy issue like gender equality with an open trading environment. You will find in this gender arrangement, you will find references to domestic labor market policies, including gender policies. You will find references to international mechanisms, including WTO rules and international labor rules. You will also find references to voluntary standards that are used in value chains like responsible business conduct. So it's different elements. And you find references to in ensuring that there's no discrimination against women in services trade. And if my understanding is correct, very similar language is currently being negotiated at the WTO under the joint statement initiatives on domestic services regulation, where there is an explicit provision on non-gender discrimination. So here I think we see how there are parallels between different ways of discussing gender and trade uh, arrangements, agreements, provisions in different forums. I consider this Chitaga very innovative. I congratulate the three initiators for this great initiative. And I hope that after Mexico, many more other countries will join Chitaga. So what is happening in Mexico? And, you know, do you see the future of this potentially also at the WTO? that this moves really into the multilateral uh, forum? At the WTO, there has, have been already a lot of initiatives and discussions on gender issues. So as I said, this provision in the joint statement initiative, this is the first time that we get gender discrimination explicitly mentioned in a legal text mm -hmm. that is relevant for the WTO. But as Cecilia may uh, remember, a very important event that took place in Buenos Aires some year ago, years ago with the Buenos Aires Declaration that was at the ministerial conference in, of the WTO in Argentina at the time, where uh, many countries agreed to work together on trade and gender. And Cecilia may even be better placed than myself to say a bit more about that memorable event at the time. Well, it was indeed uh, memorable and uh, it, it was important because so many countries signed up and so many countries committed to really look into their trade practices and see what more can we do to include women. Uh, and that has led to a lot of seminars within the WTO, but also bilaterally between different countries in different kinds of constellation, trying to identify what is the problem. There's been a huge cooperation worldwide to, to try to find data because we need data on, on this, how women are engaging in trade and what, what are the problems, sort of a mapping of discriminatory laws, different workshops, different initiatives that we have been hosting in the European Union to, to put women within SMEs together so that they can learn from each other. And hopefully there will be a sort of follow-up now at the new ministerial in WTO in, in a couple of weeks to see how, how do we take this further. Because there is a lot you can do. And lots of research show that if you involve women in the economy at the same extent as the, the most advanced countries do, there are eight or nine countries who are really topping the list here. So if you do that, GDP would grow by 
12 trillion US dollar. That is 12 zero, 12 trillion US dollars to 2025. So there's a lot to do. Lots of things are happening, but there's still a discrimination. And I think the OECD and, and the, the, this initiative is, is really uh, worth highlighting. Also, IMF, World Bank and others have encouraged countries now that they will take budgets of recovery after the COVID crisis, that they sort of gentrify them. So they put gender as a specific glasses and um, statistics in order to encourage how to invest in women and girls, because we know that they have for much more than men during the COVID crisis globally. And, and so that you can, can do this. In trade, you can do things like anonymizing public procurement applications, because we have discovered that then where they are anonymous, more women are, are being given the chance uh, for different prospects. And, and there's a lot you can do. We have in specific gender provisions in our trade agreement within EU and Canada. We are negotiating that also in the ongoing negotiations with New Zealand and uh, Chile. So with some like-minded countries, like the three who took this initiative, you can go even further in order to highlight this because it's the right thing to do, but it's also very economically beneficial to do so as well, to involve women in trade. I couldn't agree more, Cecilia. Involving women in trade is indeed a win-win if done right, which starts also by simply making sure that women have a seat at the table when trade policy is being discussed. As we just heard from Cecilia and from what I have learned throughout our conversation today, there is a lot that we can do and that we are doing to make trade more inclusive. But there is also still a lot of work left to do. Marianne, what would you say is needed in the future to really push forward this agenda on inclusive trade? What do we need to prioritize to make it happen? Thanks, Marie. Well, there are many things that need to be done, but in order to agree on this at the international level, it is important, I consider, to increase collaboration and communication across countries and within countries. I think I'm using a term that Cecilia recently used. Um, let's talk with each other and find jointly solutions for this complex matter because we are in this together and the desire for more inclusiveness exists everywhere in rich and poor countries in LDCs, emerging economies and industrialized economies. The how there we may sometimes differ in what we how we want to reach this, but if we talk to each other and try to cooperate, I'm confident that we can find ways to progress on this agenda. Let's end with an area where there is still a lot of opportunity to get it right, in which, if done right, could actually become a front runner of inclusive trade. I'm talking about digital trade. Developments in e-commerce and digital trade have been accelerated through the pandemic. So looking to the future, how do we promote inclusive digital transformation and how do we make digital trade a pillar of inclusive trade, particularly for women, SMEs, and developing countries? Cecilia? Absolutely. This is a, a bright future in many ways, and the COVID crisis has forced all of us to become more digital. But it has also revealed the, the huge inequalities within countries and between countries, of course. So now that we are hopefully getting slowly out of the crisis, at least in, in Europe, we need to make sure that we really invest in digital skills to overcome that gap. And uh, many women do work in, in SMEs dealing with digital or in, in the digital sector as a whole. But from what, what I hear, uh, there are still a lot of discrimination ongoing there. There's still not lot equality. So we need to make sure that the investments that we do in digital really is 
you know, gender neutral in that regard and that we really make sure that, that young girls in school can have the same training and, and education uh, as boys and that, that we support these small companies led by, by women as well because that will very much help us uh, in, in the future. The EU is investing a huge amount of money in this and the recovery fund, there's 20% that needs to go to digital investment. That is excellent. Of course, every country has their different needs, but, but every country needs to make sure that this money is invested as well to, to help and promote uh, women. Unfortunately, this is all we got time for today, but I'm sure that the conversation on how to make trade work for all will continue to be at the top of national and international agendas. In any case, thank you so much to both of you for your time and for this tour de force on what trade for all actually means and for your suggestions of how to make trade more inclusive in the future. If you're interested in the other expert conversations that are part of the AIG Global Trade Series 2021, please go to our website at www.aig.co.uk slash gts. The AIG Global Trade Series 2021 is an international partnership between AIG, the Georgetown Law Institute of International Economic Law, Chatham House, the Klingendal Institute, the Research Institute of Economy, Trade and Industry, the Jacques Delors Institute, and the International Chamber of Commerce UK and France. The Bertelsmann Stiftung is a knowledge partner of the series. To access articles and opinion pieces from partners in the Global Trade series, and to listen to more podcasts on global trade, search AIG Global Trade Series 2021 or follow the AIG Global Trade Series wherever you get your podcasts.